Architecture change. Hi, I'm Andrew Mitchler. And then you're supposed to say I'm Jonah Stanford. I thought that was great. I thought it was just standalone. And this is Jonah Stanford. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. After you say that? Okay. Yeah. I think that would be really helpful. So we know who the hell this other person is. Hi, I'm Andrew Mitchler. And I'm Jonah Stanford. And this is the podcast Arc Change. Embracing complexity in an architectural process, allowing all potential influences on a project to uh, to cross through the design process and to be um, reviewed and evaluated and played with on the same on the same level, um, being open to the potential that. Um, all sorts of influences may actually define the success of the project. It's yeah. it's really hard to put these things into a nutshell. So that's yeah. what um, I think we're trying to maybe work on. So can we say that this podcast is very much about the discovery or are working towards, but not necessarily have solved? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's completely about... Um, the process. The process is much more interesting now to me than the product. Because architecture gets built, I think it would be a shame to think of that as it being complete. Hey there, so this is Andrew, and I'm uh, nerding out on uh, all sorts of uh, fun facts with uh, my good friend John Fastler here. He's, uh, he's been a big podcast listener, and this is his very first podcast, so be nice to him. Uh, also, John has uh, been in the home performance energy world for a long time and has uh, crawled through and mucked through uh, well over a thousand houses so far. Getting really close to 2,000 at this point. Really? Now, do uh, do you get like a gold watch or anything once you hit 2,000? I think I'm the only one keeping track. Okay. Maybe I'll do that for myself. Right. Oh, well, you know, if we what we can do is just uh, hand a hat around and, and maybe we can do a fundraiser for you there you go yeah buy you a gold blower door or something right. like that hey john you you most of the houses you look at are existing buildings right or almost That's all of exactly them. right yeah. right almost everything is existing homes now once in a while i get into a home that's one year old or one or two years old which is just kind of a sad day when you're doing an audit on a on a home that's just been built right but most of them are at least uh, 15 years old, 15 to 40, 60 years old, something okay. in that range. So we thought this was a good opportunity to talk about uh, what you don't know about your house. Because John probably knows more about your house than you do, even though he's never even seen it. And a lot of it has to do with physics. A lot of it has to do with just good old fashioned, you know, how we thought about buildings through the ages and how they've changed through time. And so what we did was we wrote a list of uh, questions on my Passive House window, and we're going to go through those questions really quick and see uh, if we can mix it up. And we do this all the time in bars, so so we've been well-practiced and well-versed at this. So let's give it a go. Right. So the first thing we wrote down... Is, uh, is a new furnace worth it? And almost all the houses you see, I'm sure, have an older furnace in them. Is that correct? 
Uh, yes, a large, yeah, yeah, large percentage, probably 80, 70 or 80% have an old 80% efficient furnace, induced draft, uh, fairly safe type of furnace for carbon monoxide. What does induced draft mean? And induced draft means there's a fan that forces the combustion byproducts out of the house. And, and it's, uh, it's not a sealed system, but it's a very reliable system for getting those, uh, those combustion gases out of the house, like carbon monoxide. And they have AFU numbers and on them? AFUE on AFUE. that uh, furnace will be around 80%. Uh, we measure every one, and they almost always come in between 80 and 83 or 84% efficient, whether they're 20 years old or 2 years old. So it's a so complete, kind of utterly dependable technology at this point. Very dependable, very simple, rarely goes wrong. And, and do most people here use uh, furnaces rather than boilers or other type of technologies? Yes, uh, we very rarely in, in our uh, in our location, which is Fort Collins, Colorado, it's uh, 95% at least furnace, forced air furnaces. And I'd say the whole western region of the U.S. is forced air. That would be my guess. Natural gas. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so what do we not know about our so furnaces? So furnaces. Uh, the idea of, of uh, upgrading that furnace to a 90 or 95% efficient furnace is that going to save you 10 to 15% on your heating bill? And from what I've seen and from the data I've kept, it's not going to. And my conclusion from that is the waste heat from that furnace flue, as that flue goes up through your house, all that supposed waste heat is actually radiating into your house. You very easily verify that just by using an infrared camera you can find where the furnace flue goes up through the house. So once you get to the top of the house where that flue gas is actually exiting, you're looking at 100 degree temperatures. And this is typically type uh, V vent, which is like aluminum on the inside and steel on the outside or? Uh, steel on both. Steel on um, both? Yeah, just a, a, the, the very conventional B vent that's two, double walled, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's a radiator essentially. Right, right. Very nice, very conductive. Very conductive. All those those two surfaces are very conductive. So that so that's your, functionally your second heat exchanger. What a typical right. furnace nowadays would have two heat exchangers. That that would be your counterflow uh, heat exchanger yes. in essence. And, in and it's amazing to me how how effective it is. In that you will see with infrared a five to ten degree higher temperature on that wall surrounding. Mm -hmm. That chase surrounding. And they're almost always in the basement, so they're running through one or two stories. Through, yes, on a two-story, you're definitely getting almost the full benefit of all of that. Right now, of course, uh, the other side is that the new furnaces are sealed combustion, typically. Yes, yes. and that is, in my mind, uh, we really should still we we should be working to a place where the only thing we do is sealed combustion. But as far as making a decision and setting a priority on an existing home, it's not the furnace. Mm -hmm. It's not the equipment that we should touch. And they're expensive the suckers. Priority. A lot of money spent for very little savings. Right. Yeah, there's, there's also the idea uh, that if people say, well, I have a more efficient furnace, therefore I can raise the thermostat a little bit. Do you think that's a real concern or I a real that, reality? It's, it's a concern, yes. Definitely I wouldn't say so. concern, but you know, I mean, come it's, on, that's it happens. It, it yeah. happens. Yeah, 
yeah, the, the idea is that, oh, I've got a, a more efficient furnace, therefore I've done everything, let's, let's go ahead and just use it. And because people are also always, you know, burn, money's burning in their pocket, they want new windows. Yes. Uh, and we've, you know, obviously there's a lot of window companies out there that throw out these amazing numbers, save 30% on your energy bill right. with new windows today, right. call us. Yes. And we'll come in with our clipboard and, you know, make yeah. and show you how it works. Now, yeah. is there any reality to that? Uh, I would guess that you know, typically what we're looking at is somebody has gone with an equation, single pane windows to probably a better window than what they're selling. And then possibly, even then, it, it's just, I, I can't imagine the house where you're going to see a 30% savings by right. replacing windows. And why? It's Why not? Just not? That's not the driving part of the equation. The so you're introducing the equation. This is a physics question? A physics question, yes. Uh -huh. Heat loss. And you're going from an R value of, at worst case, with a single pane of one, which we rarely see anyway, but typically an R value of two for double pane windows to an R value of three for double pane low E. Very little difference there, really, in how much how much you're improving that. Right, and your wall would be in the real world in our value of maybe ten. Ten, even for an insula uninsulated wall, you're going to have an R value of eight to ten, just by this dead airspace and the, the width of it. Right. Uh, then you go to, but and we rarely see that again. So then, you know, the whole assembly, you're going to be 10 to 15 very easily. So you swap so, out your windows, your crappy aluminum double pane things that get all frosted at the bottom in the wintertime in your kid's room. And you put in the new champion of vinyl, low E, special coating, right. you know, with a, you know, with the lowest solar heat gain coefficient number on right. it and everything else. And uh, it might not make any difference at all. It might, it might not be measurable. Might not be measurable. Savings, right. right. But, and I've yeah. done a lot of this where, to me, the, the, the true measure of, of energy savings, of heating energy use, is BTUs per square foot per heating degree day. We normalize for all of these things and we make sure that we're getting a true measure. Did that make a difference? And that's where a lot of, of my opinions come into play is from getting this data and looking at it. And okay. Saying, you know, you replaced your furnace. Did we see anything the next year? No, we didn't. Typically, to go off to where, where we'll go to later in, in the podcast, but it, where we can see measurable savings is insulation and air sealing. Right. But we'll get to that later. Yeah, but I want new windows. I mean, my old windows are, are wooden, aluminum. They're, yep. they're falling apart. They're ugly. You know, they don't even work particularly well. And I can feel air leakage through them, which has got to be bad. So I'm getting new windows. Right. So why don't I just get the double pane, uh, you know, Marvin what, brand name, whatever they are, get the more expensive Double pane window isn't that what I isn't that still a good thing? Exactly, it sounds great, but uh, my comment to that is always let's make a big difference. Let's go to triple pane windows and get to an R value of six. Then we've got the weakest component in your house up to we've doubled the R value. We've really made a big difference. We're going to make that surface temperature warmer in the winter, and we're really going to make it more comfortable. And that, and we, and comfort is uh, certainly 
uh, big driving force that we have a hard time understanding. Exactly. Exactly. So that so the difference between that double pain and that triple pain from just a comfort point of view is real. It's huge. Okay. So and that's that brings us. Well, we can go on to. Let's uh, let's skip down uh, on the list there to C R O I. Okay, and I just made that up. Yes. So I I like that. You like that? (laughs) So Andrew's come up with the term rather than R O I, we call it uh, C R O I. So comfort return on investment. Right. Uh, I've phrased it a different way in the past. I've always said, let's talk about the R. What's that R stand for? Right. And it's return, Uh, but. Uh, I, I like talking to accountants about this kind of thing. Accountants who you would assume are very dollar based are actually very in tune with the fact that the return on investment is not always dollars. It is comfort. And mm-hmm. in this case, it's, it's so hugely comfort. If it were only dollars, I don't think we would do anything to even the worst house that we have right now. Well, let me ask, uh, how many people do you uh, talk to uh, when it comes down to the brass tacks, talk more about comfort issues than their bill that they're getting in the mail? Yes, almost, I would say it's in the high, it's in the 80% or more who talk more about comfort or more driven by comfort than dollars. And yet all the policy, the reason why you're often there is because the, the policy makers for the city and other places are looking at the energy side and they assume that it's all about the return on investment is, is a financial yes. question. Yes, right? that is kind of a problem. The, when, you, when you boil it down to just dollars, it's a tougher argument to make. Right. So what do you have? So what's, how, how do you approach the comfort question? Uh, it, it's really pretty easy when uh, you, as far as doing an audit, the biggest priority is finding out where people's pain is and where they want what they want to fix, and talking about it very on on a very base level. What's the biggest thing we can do? So you're almost using them as your tester tester of yes. the building. They've they've experienced every nook and cranny of that building, and they may not know why, but they know what. Yes. And it, it's a little bit of a tangent, but it's very, uh, you have to be almost a psychologist to get inside and figure out where people are. Uh, for instance, a lot of times I go into a house, I'm in a, I do audits, I do this every day. I go in and I ask, is your house comfortable? And most people will say, yes, it is. And then we walk around the house and I'll say, is this room, this room seems like it's, it's hot. It's, it's like, oh, it's very hot up here. It's, we can't even live upstairs. And mm-hmm. I go back and I think, well, you just told me your house was comfortable. And what I've learned is the word comfort doesn't necessarily state, state it correctly to get an uh-huh. answer to figure out whether people's houses are comfortable. Gotcha, gotcha. So comfort so, is almost like this general, I'm happy with the fact that I spent, I have this huge mortgage and that I don't want to disparage the fact my home so much. I mean, it seems like it's almost, from the therapy point of view, there's something else going on. Exactly, there's there's a certain ego invested probably in, you know, it's, do you like your home or not that you paid? Uh, Right, hundred thousand. We could be talking about their drapes for yeah. God's sake. Comfort no, who is knows? so all-encompassing. It's right. 
so I've, I've messed with this a lot over the years to try to figure what is the best way to ask somebody? Is your house thermally comfortable? Then you start using words that aren't necessarily in our standard vocabulary. So that doesn't necessarily work. So can we change your title to the home performance therapist? That's Perhaps. A, that's a, is that a, a little more a good accurate? way to put it, I think. Um, I've, I've decided a long time ago that asking people what their thermostat settings are is, uh, is, a, is, is useless. Mm-hmm. Um, and the best way to confirm that is to ask a husband and wife separately what their thermostat settings are. And you get drastically different answers. <laughs> and also, when you ask somebody what their thermostat setting is for cooling in the middle of the winter, they don't remember what their thermostat setting is. Really? So you get totally erroneous numbers in the off-season. So if you're asking about heating temperature settings in the middle of the summer, uh, people are much more in tune with their cooling okay. settings, and they give you very high settings. Hey, so we're going to talk about... So it's uh, an interesting thing. The things that you don't know about your house, and now that you brought up thermostats, we didn't write on the list. Now yes. we're coming out with, you know, the smart the smart home movement yeah. never really took off, but at least we, we said, okay, well, we'll give you a thermostat, and it's Wi-Fi, and somehow we have algorithms, and algorithms do so much for us. Why can't an algorithm help us make a more comfortable, more energy efficient home? Right. Is that a reality? I. I think it has potential, but it's in its infancy and it can get it wrong more often than it gets it right. My biggest problem with a programmable thermostat is that it, uh, it takes the homeowner out of the equation. The lowest energy use and most, uh, most comfortable homes are homes where the homeowner is involved and engaged. Mm. And the programmable thermostat, to me, takes them out of the equation. Uh-huh. So I, I so see... In other words, it's another thing where I don't have to really be paying and, attention. And, and like that whole sensory mm-hmm. component. Right. Yeah. It goes as, away. And I, I, I have a programmable thermostat. I use it. I, I turn the thermostat up and down as I see fit. I, I never use the, the setback features on it. Right. And, and, and now the EPA, not the EPA... Yeah, the Energy Star folks have uh, no longer certify the traditional programmable thermostat as a, as a Energy Star component because they always assumed that it was going to save energy, and turns out that it never really did. Right. When they actually measured, I'm, I'm always encouraged when when they do actually get it right. Uh, sometimes it takes them a long time. <laughs> I don't. Want well, they to need be, data, John. I don't want to be too critical of Energy Star. And that costs they, the government money. They have not gotten. A, they have gotten a lot of things wrong over the year. Um, and one of them was programmable thermostats. Now we have to fight with years and years of people hearing, oh, all I need to do is get a programmable thermostat. Right. And, so what is, uh, so we wrote on our list, and I think this leads to the next thing, what is the cheapest thing we can do to actually save energy, right. real energy in our homes? And, and that is my, my best example is one of the first things I did in my house. I turned off the gas fireplace, the, uh, the fireplace pilot light, on my gas, uh, I'm sorry, let me start over there. <laughs> Turned off the pilot light on my natural gas fireplace. Uh, $10 a month savings cost me nothing. 10 bucks. And this was the other thing is I measured it. Uh-huh. I went outside, I turned the pilot light on, I measured how fast the gas meter 
turned, turned it off, measured how fast it turned. Okay. And it's $10 a month for those. Uh, and that's a thousand BTUs per hour, by the way. That's a lot of heat being pushed into your home from that pilot light all summer long. And your air conditioning's fighting air that. Air conditioning's fighting it. So that's almost, if it's, boy, that's almost like squeezing three extra people into the house in a way. You know, just from a BTU from a point. BTUs at it. It's uh, 10, that's 10 therms a month. I do a lot of rounding. Natural gas, we can say it costs 90 cents a therm. Let's, let's just say it costs a dollar a therm. We make the math easy. Why not? 10 therms a month, that's about what you pay. That's about what you use to heat water in the summer. Okay. So you can heat, you can get all your water heating for the month for 10 therms, or you can run a pilot light. Right. Um, now there's um, obviously a flu coming out of that and thing too. there's a flu coming out of that. Yes, it's uh, uh, radio. A lot of that heat then is also right. going up and out in the winter time. So... so. But also you're talking about how uh, the cheapest thing you do is really behavioral. Right. How to pay attention to what your house does. Right, right. And that is, so that pilot light is an example of what I, I call always on or vampire load. Right. It's the things that are using energy even though you're not home, you're not using them. Right. And that's the other thing that I did in my house. I went around and I plugged in a watt hour meter and determined what was using energy even though I wasn't there using it. Now there's there's loads now here in Fort Collins we freaked out about uh, radon gas and everybody's right. pushing these radon systems and like your neighbor has a radon fan that's just right. whirring it sounds like a hair dryer right. right next to your front porch and we have thousands of those things yes throughout the city uh, what's you know that's I always thought it was one of my favorite examples that you have. About right. How right. To... Yeah. So my radon uh, levels measured 40 picocuries per liter when I measured them at my house. Uh, the EPA recommends four. So I, I was a little concerned with this, very concerned with seeing that kind of a high level of radon. Uh, so then I went in and I, I have a crawl space. So I covered the soil with an airtight barrier. Uh, pretty quickly got it down to 10, but mm -hmm. even from there it needed to go some more. So then I put a pipe in that goes up and out through the roof. That pipe lets the air underneath that, uh, that soil gas barrier go out of the house. And now I'm at 2.5 all the time. And the, the, the thing to uh, consider here is that there's no fan on my system. If I would have called a radon contractor, they would have put in a, a fan that depressurizes underneath that soil the gas barrier and uses 60 watts so 500 kilowatt hours a year the same as a refrigerator so wow. like adding a refrigerator to my house and i did it with zero zero energy use. right but again we're talking about measuring and how how is it that they are not measuring the difference between like can they put these fans on a rheostat or is there anything that we can actually do to well that or is, just get rid of the cost of the fan and if that, in that case in my mind the first thing we should do and and i cannot get radon contractors to buy into this but the first thing we should do on every house that needs a radon that has a, a elevated radon system is put it in a passive system mm -hmm. and then remeasure radon and try again uh, but the radon fan companies also make a 20 watt fan 
which is moving 100 cubic feet per minute as opposed to 120 cubic feet per minute. Mm -hmm. So I, I But they'd like to feel... mark up the cost of those fans, right? And a little little for you, a little for me kind of thing. I mean, well, aren't they incentivized they, to make the, these systems the more complicated? The fan makes, it costs just as much. It costs oh. the same price. It's oh. just the energy use. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it's really not... I, I believe that their interest is that once in a while they really need a major depressurization. Mm -hmm. They don't want to go back. And by putting in a 60-watt fan, three times what they use, need on most houses. But again, we're making policy based on things that are not being measured, right? Right. And that's, yeah, I think that uh, back to, the, or to that point of policy discussions, uh, we've not addressed things like radon fans or fireplace pilot lights. Uh, that are huge energy use and huge opportunities. There should never be another uh, fireplace manufactured with a standing gas pilot light, but yet, yet you still see them all the time. Okay. Uh, so what else is cheap? I mean, yeah, what I what we always talk about for especially in wintertime is just you know get a cock gun, start sealing your house here and there, right. and you know hope for the best. Right. Now that sounds cheap. And just takes a little bit of time and, you know, 30 bucks worth of stuff. Is that usually worth it or? or it, from, in my experience. Does it make you feel good like you're big, doing something but you're not you, actually doing something? It makes you feel good. I've actually argued uh, this point with some auditors of, because I've, I've made the point. Oh, that's, you're not making any difference with things like plug gaskets or. Right. Oh, yeah. Clocking. Yeah. Plug gaskets. Uh, when I do a blower door test. Um, I can I cannot tell which plugs have the gasket on and which don't. Wow. Equal amounts of air coming through each. Wow. Uh, but I've had people argue that well we need to make people like feel like they can do something. In my mind, uh, if if you told me to put plug gaskets on and then I found out later that plug gaskets made no difference, I'd be very unhappy with you telling me to to spend my time doing something. It's kind of, they're actually kind of a pain in the butt to they're install, a real pain. and they look ridiculous. Sometimes, there. yeah, but and make a very little difference. Okay, so my, you know, for me, the number one nemesis always seems to be the can light. Yes, and you know, of course, these things are rated for. You know, if you have a non-rated box, then my God, they'll catch on fire, right. and everybody will die if you. Right. So you gotta have them open up to the attic, right. to for your own protection, right? Right. So, uh, what do you do? When you're when you think that your insurance company is going to not pay your lawsuit when your right. house burns down because right. you have a sealed can light, uh, the, the the sealed can lights are are very difficult to address in some ways. Although they're, be, they're becoming easier now, we've got uh, LED light manufacturers are making inserts that you can put in there. You put a sticker on it. This mm -hmm. has been modified now. Now we can bury it in nice. insulation. In the past, where all we had was incandescent lights, and we'd have to... Now, you could build a big enough box around them, and we still do that once in a while. If we've got an old recessed light, we'll build a big enough box that it meets the manufacturer's uh, specifications for clearances, and then we can bury it. Although weatherization has some very outdated rules that they don't want any recessed light totally covered. They want to leave airflow. 
And is that based uh, on, again, measurements or are they just... That's based on fear. Uh-huh. Simply fear. Uh-huh, yes, yes, yes. If you've met the manufacturer's recommendations, um, there should be no problem. But I can't see anybody that. putting an incandescent back into where an LED is. Uh, you would hope not, but unfortunately we have to plan for the worst case. And people, there's still a lot of incandescents out there. Yeah. You mean, uh, well, in, there are. In the world. But and you can, so, but once you replace it. Right. Are people going to go back? I mean, if, I hope not. Uh, well, you never know. You, you don't. But you know, I mean, there's a Darwin quality to this whole thing. If your house burns down because that's, you replaced an LED with an incandescent, yeah. maybe, you know, maybe it's not as right. bad as we initially yeah. thought. I'll, I'll never take... Socially yeah, speaking, I, not for you. It's a tragedy yeah. for you. Not, right. I'm sorry. I'll never, I'll never take the idea of, of, of fire hazard lightly, but I do, I do think um, yeah, there's, there's a very tiny risk with a lot of these things too. Right. Hey, uh, can I overseal my house? Am I going to uh, get carbon monoxide poisoning and, and, and get sick and get headaches and get fired from my job if I do this? Um, absolutely unlikely that you will. Okay. And what you, can, what you will do by tightening your house is remove variables. And it's much easier to control a tightly sealed, an airtight house than it is a randomly leaky house that's leaking from everywhere. Right. Yeah. So this is where when we install, uh, when we insta install gas appliances, let's be careful with it. Let's do it thoughtfully and do it correctly. Like a uh, hot water uh, heater is the, yes, is water the heater is Marion. So they uh, haven't changed really much at all. Yeah. Absolutely. At the, at the blue and orange store. Obsolete technology where the, uh, the heat from the gas burning heats up the flue and creates a draft or a suction. Mm -hmm. And that suction pulls the, the uh, carbon monoxide out of the home. This is a very sensitive thing that can be uh, defeated by turning on a bath fan or turning on your dryer in your home that will pull that those combustion gases back into your home. So bottom line, we should... Because you're depressurizing the house and you're the one place for it to go through is potentially is the flu and with the right wind, it yeah. can all those gases Even, can come back in the yeah, house. Yeah, we, we try... Now are those gases really that dangerous or is that... You know what I mean? Very good question, yes. It, it, so, will they kill me or, or only once in a while? On a brand new water heater, uh, we measure carbon monoxide. We measure typically less than five parts per million. For carbon monoxide, if that water heater vented into your house the whole time it was on, you would not die, you would not get sick. It would be almost no problem. Wow. But at some point in that water heater's life, it's going to start producing 2,000 parts per million. That day, that time as the burners get sootier over time you get incomplete yes. combustion or yeah things yeah go things wrong. happen it's yeah, just yeah. a mechanical device and we see it all the time all of a sudden that water heater is producing 2,000 parts per million if that starts uh, drafting into your house instead of going out you're going to have a dangerous situation very quickly right. and i can imagine here at altitude that those things are not often really uh, properly uh, dialed in when they're installed from the factory too. I mean, I can imagine that uh, could be. there could be some uh, other issues that we don't think about. I think they're so simple. When they're yeah, brand new. that's true. When they're brand new. I mean, they're they like are, the burner on yeah. your stovetop. I mean, it's yeah. the most simple technology possible. 
Yeah. Outside I, of like make it, putting a little stove underneath a pot of water and then putting some kindling down there, this is like the next step in evolution. Uh, I, I feel like the, the modern or the, the standard water here that's in 90% of homes out there is similar to uh, a witch's cauldron. Right. With a fire underneath it. Right. You know, is there be, you know, I just installed a on-demand hot water heater in my house mm -hmm. and you have one for years right. in your house and you replaced a tank water yes, heater? Yes, I replaced a standard tank water heater. And what, what are your, how do you feel about that change? I think it was a good decision to make. Um, I may have used a, to do it over, I may have put in a sealed combustion tank water heater. So same technology as the tankless except a thousand dollars less and uh, not quite as efficient but pretty darn close mm -hmm. uh, the big thing we want to do is just get a modern combustion appliance in uh, tankless water heaters are great some of the time but uh, they, they're not great for washing dishes every time you turn mm -hmm. that faucet on off on off you're going through the process then of getting a little bit of cold water in there oh that's a good point um, yeah, in mine, mine uh, has been a water pressure issue, which I solved, but my God, is mine complicated? I mean, it really looks like popping the hood in my car. It's right. just, I don't understand half of what's in there yeah. anymore. It's, it's incredible. And that's, yeah, I've had my tankless water heater now for 10 years, uh -huh. and it seems like it is clicking along, like it's going to go another 10 to 15 years very easily. It's nice. working great. So from that point of view, I'm very happy with it. Uh, it is interesting. We have Miller Moths here in, in Fort Collins and in Colorado. Uh, after about three years, the fans started making a bunch of noise, and I had to go in and take it apart and clean out all those, those little uh, Miller Moths. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so that's uh, something for people in Colorado. Uh, it's very easy to do, but it's not very well known. Right. For some reason. Yeah, because they come every once in a while, and then right. who knows? They're, they're inconsistent. We might not have them this year, it looks like. So. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, old houses, which you know a lot about, and new houses. And I forget what the hell we're going to talk about, but there's, there's a lot of... There's a lot of interesting synergies and differences between for, the two. For me, I think the big point I like to make, I, I have chosen to specialize in old houses because I, I enjoy the challenge and I also... You're like one of those monks who like to self-flagellate, I think, John. <laughs> no. You're one of those guys who says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend my day crawling through somebody's hot as balls attic and, you know, and see, you know, where the crawl space is and get to the really end of the corner of the crawl space because that's right. what I like to spend my time right. doing. But, you know, that, um, as far as I'm concerned, that is easy compared to the guys who actually have to do the work. I can ah. crawl back there, take a picture, and put it in a report. Okay. That's pretty easy. For me, the true torture would be arguing with a builder over some tiny little detail that doesn't quite meet code, and actually <laughs> you know, trying to enforce a code that is so lightweight, in my opinion, that it shouldn't even... You know, it's 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 useless and that's the new so, world so that's just political so if, if i had chosen and i i did work in new construction for nine months uh -huh. and the idea of trying in new construction the opportunity at least that time and you, you were know, a builder too your background is I a am, is a new construction yeah, builder I'm, I'm a former builder I was in the industry for 20 years 
to go in and argue with a builder uh, as to whether they're meeting code or not and them wanting to go less than code when code is so weak anyway, that would be true torture for uh -huh. me. Yeah. So existing homes are torture also because there's only so much we can do reasonably. So if we ever get a good building code, then I would be glad to go out and enforce it and train it and things like that. Okay. Because then, it, then we would be making a big difference. So my, the point I always want to make with, with this is it's very difficult to fix an existing well, home. These are Energy it's Star homes, John. These new homes, they're Energy Star. They got stars. <laughs> yeah, they and you have, have stars, a HERS rating. Yes. And you can have a zero HERS rating, John. And you want to help those people right. get there with their new home. That, that brings up a good point on new construction. Will an Energy Star rated home be comfortable? Uh -huh. the, the Energy Star rating is an energy code, not a comfort code. Okay. So, so yes, it might be more comfortable than an older home. But we get a lot, whole lot of Energy Star rated homes, and they are using 50% less energy than my 1970s home. But a lot of times we get comfort complaints. They're drafty, they're cold. I assume they overheat like a bugger too. Often. They overheat very, they put a lot of windows very in these commonly overheat. Um, and they're very com commonly drafty because they're, hmm. they're really putting in single stage furnaces in most of these Energy Star homes because Energy Star is not looking at comfort. They're simply looking at BTUs delivered. It's a physics equation. I love physics, but you also have to uh, put the right variables or the, the right uh, outcomes in. What, what do you want to get out of it? If all you want is energy savings, then you put a fire in the middle, middle of the building and you insulate it. Right. Uh, Which, that's, that's not comfortable. Uh, you know, that's what I do in my house. It's, my old house. In your old house. Yeah. yeah. It is. It, but I just, I live in a pine forest yeah. and, you know, they're like, why right. didn't you put a wood stove in your passive house? It's like, that is the my right. nightmare. Right. is to, to try to deal right. with the complexities of getting cheap, quote-unquote cheap, because, boy, it takes a lot of time to just get wood, right? Uh, and try to deal with the, the thermal dynamics of that inside a building that I already was able to quantify really right. very carefully. So, Right, yeah, it, it is so comfortable. We're sitting in your passive house right now, and it is... Uh, well, today's not... Not the day when we're really arguing. No, we could. It's, it's very comfortable outside. But it's pretty. I've awesome. been up here multiple times, and it is always incredibly comfortable, with no fireplace going, with no heat source going. Yeah, it's, it's just an amazing thing to feel. It's been a good summer, just because the house really does feel as though when I open the door and I walk in, as though there's an air conditioner on. It really has right. that same like difference, yep. uh, delta T between the outside and the inside which is kind of fascinating because the other house may only be a little bit warmer, but it doesn't have the same comfort same effect. Exactly. And I don't, I can't, I don't know why. I don't know what's going on. I've, yet. Uh, so. I've experienced it similarly in my old 1970s house. Now that I have insulated it well, I use a whole house fan at night mm -hmm. and I cool down all of the surfaces, everything, the furniture, everything gets cold at night. And then I close it up during the day. When I come home at the end of the day, it feels nice and cool in there. Mm -hmm. Even though the air, air temperature might be close to 80 degrees, it feels a lot cooler than a normal house would. It's because all those surface temperatures have not risen to 
unreasonably high right. temperatures. And we're lucky to get away with that here in kind of the southwest high desert yes. region. But, uh, but you know, I, we wanted to jump to more of the macro thing is, you know, we're, we, you've seen a lot of houses. You, a lot of your work is based on, on policy of local governments. And right. they get those policies from hiring RMI and all these other guys who come out with these great big statements you know, about uh, how we're going to save carbon and all the other energy things. But, you know, it sounds like from the 2000 houses and our constant conversations that retrofitting old houses is the hardest thing out there right yes. now to do. That, very, very it, you know, there's very little money. There's very little data. It's hard to find contractors who are there to support it. Right. You know, it, it seems that there's it's. Once people already have a mortgage, it's hard to quantify why they're going to spend another significant amount of money for returns that are hard to understand. And from a carbon point of view, it's from the great, the, the kind of the great scale of, of our carbon consumption, our old buildings really for the return on investment from, from our greater culture is that where we're going to get much of a bang for buck. Compared to new buildings. Right, right. I would say not because it takes so much to get this old building down to anywhere close to what we could do right from the start with a brand new passive house. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the worst passive house that's built will use 0.75 BTUs per square foot per heating degree day in four columns. And probably the best house we're building right now is around two code-built house. Uh -huh. So you're going you know, half the energy use modeled. The and the the really important thing to and that and that's with like people actually using that. the building. Yeah, I mean that's not that's just actually the spreadsheet usage, right? Well, there, that's both both of the both of those are modeled usage. The fact is that the new home built to code goes two and up. The passive house goes 0.75 and down. And I've even measured a passive house that used a third of that. So even less, almost zero energy to heat. And what Not we're finding is that the margins for passive house construction, even if you're off by 30, 40%, which usually won't happen because you've already been that careful with your modeling, even if it's off that much, you're still only talking about 30% of a much smaller number right. than a code-built house, which had, can have the equivalent right. change. And that would actually be three or four passive houses worth of energy difference. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's the scale between, you know, a dog and an elephant, really. Yes. Yeah, very when important we talk about those to, numbers. to make that distinction. When you're off by 30% of a very low energy home, not very consequential. Thirty right. percent off on uh, something that's that's using more. It, it's a bigger error. So, uh, so code right now is very incremental, and you're yes. talk and you're you've become a big passive house proponent for a number of years. You talk to code officials, and what's their view of passive house? Uh, it's it's always the it, it, they they have one of two arguments usually. Or first of all, they start out with uh, oh. Building is too good right now. We can't slow it down. What do you mean That's too good? Meaning too, uh, 
the economy is too good. We're building okay. too fast. We can't slow things down right now by instituting a better code. Okay. And then when the economy is bad and they're Are, not building enough, then so is is there policymakers then? Is that what we're talking about? In we're, other words, you know, we don't want yeah, to scare. Right. Policy, we don't want to disrupt the economy as a result makers, of doing things better. I, I, feel like policymakers are afraid of builders. Okay. Those are those are the arguments the builders would make and so the policymakers gotcha. go ahead and make that argument for them. We but historically when they changed code, it actually wasn't too big a deal in it's, in the field. Yeah, as as a former builder and having been involved with all of this for so many years and and having been part of it, uh, the building community's objective is to fight code changes. In, yeah. In, uh, and you talked a little bit about that, how before code was, code itself didn't make sense. So there's all these contradictions. So it made their life more difficult. And now if we can create codes which are more stringent, but actually have uh, a good, co coherent quality to the building process, that maybe it could benefit builders. It really could. It, it, Making it simple, making less options, and just say, okay, here's here's the code, here's what you, we we need you to do. Can we make so, a performance-based code? It should be, yeah. In, it's not now at all, really. Not, not at yeah. Outside of just uh, air sealing. There are, yeah, there are tests that finally do happen now. Right. And all new homes have to meet less than three ACH 50, uh, unless the jurisdiction decides for some reason that's too difficult, and they, they go in one by one and say, oh, well, we won't make you do it, which I've been hearing more and more of. And, and that's, you know, that in itself is a scandal. And there's no, and we don't talk about railings. We don't talk about a lot of other things. Traditionally, code has been safety-oriented, and now we're talking about home performance. It seems the code officials don't know what home performance actually is. I think that's very much it. I think they, they very much view it as an optional thing. That And, and I've talked to them, some code officials and they do admit they're in a different uh, a different era than what they started in. Well, yeah, so one of my neighbors up here just built a house and and he was telling me how happy he is with the builder and the code official and da 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 and he said, "Yeah, we you know, we we're at, it's at 3 ACH 50, you know, and we're really excited cuz the house is extremely comfortable, it's great." And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, if you were any worse than that, it'll be illegal construction. Right, right. You realize that. So your builder is doing nothing special. Right at three. And then he said that the code officials said that if it was any tighter, it'd be dangerous. Wow. And, that's... and, I, and I know this code official because he's a nice guy. He, he, yeah. he certified my passive house here. And uh, he didn't tell me that. You know, he right. didn't know what our real numbers. You and I, John, measure the house. Right. So maybe I think we should have a conversation about the nuances of measuring passive houses as well, because that is interesting. Right, right. Uh, but but in general, that. it seems like he had no bloody idea what he was talking about. Right. And he's telling people, you know, my God, if we make your house any better, you could put your family at risk. Right. And for him, it was all a safety issue, not based on numbers, but based no. just on this old school. If we, you know, right. people die. And I, I think that's, a, that's where we're at right now with building departments and code officials who uh, have not kept up at all. They're, uh, they're still uh, working with a, uh, a Macintosh or a, a uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's, it's eluding me now. The old computers, the 
Commodore 64. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, they have not—they've uh, not made the changes and not adjusted to these new codes and new ways of building houses. Right, and, and uh, even code itself hasn't really adjusted to the build what the building science tells us, right. especially around IAQ and right. air exchange. And listen to yeah. our podcast with Cara Rose yeah. Meyer uh, from last one. This is episode seven. This that was episode six, and we go into a little bit of that. But there's a lot of assumptions out there that have never been measured, and now we're starting to measure them and realize that my God, we had no idea why we have these assumptions except for just somebody said it once in a paper and exactly. it just found its way into a committee which then turned it into code and yep. following the paper trail yeah that's the way code and energy modeling code in the 50s was brilliant some very hard-working people put mm. brilliant codes together in the 50s we're still operating on a lot of those codes from right. the 50s same with energy modeling People did some brilliant physics equations in the 70s. We're still operating and, and gauging houses based on these equations from the 70s. Okay. And can we talk, uh, should we, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about energy modeling a little bit, but we okay. can. So we've had, I had a total freak out with the HERS scores. Right. And I'd never run the program, the Home Energy Rating System. Is that what it, right. the acronym is? And, you know, I've talked, you know, to a passive house guy and he's who does lots of new builds and you worked with him before. Uh, and he says hers ratings are pretty good because they're fairly accurate for new builds right. for code. And then I, and I'm telling him that's great, but it's a totally different world. Once we start dialing these houses into extremely energy efficient, the hers score is absolutely inaccurate and it's right. not a good predictor. And the fact is, is that we have all these people running around creating these net zero communities and throwing out these HERS scores. And for my passive house, which is about a, a HERS 40, right. and I'm seeing these, these, these negative HERS score homes, right. which would, if I put it in PHP, would be four or five times as poor performing as my building is. Exactly. So these, ener these kind of lightweight energy models are not capturing real world. Right. And it's and it's really disturbing to me that we're incentivizing people to be doing the wrong things. Yeah. A AIA throwing a bunch of silicon on a roof rather than doing real air tightness or there's no thermal bridging. All these right. other things that we need to consider as builders and designers are just not part of the conversation when we're talking about new construction. Right. Now, and, and it, it, it's flabbergasting to me that we can't even have the conversation about that because they don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Right, and, and that is, uh, I would say, six years ago, I uh, started working as an, an energy rater, and I was so excited about using modeling to predict the energy use of a building. Uh, it took me about a year to, to lose all of that and to realize <laughs> that every modeling program I've, I've used and have used since then Name them. Is we have rim rate. Right. That generates the HERS score. Terrible. Especially now that with rim rate, they, they are correct. They are predicting the energy use of a conventionally built, code built building pretty well these days. But I can do that if you give me the square footage and the climate zone that, that it's in. I right. will it's tell you how much that. They're, they're so generic and they're so basic, they're, they all use about the same amount. So there's, it's not a challenge to do that. You don't need a sophisticated modeling program mm -hmm. to do mm -hmm. that. 
But if you try to plug an existing home into a REM rate model, it will over predict how much that building is using by at least 50%. Really? Which sounds good. You're conservative. You're over predicting. The problem is uh, that utilities use this to generate savings for That's their data set. That is, and so they over predict savings, drastically over predicted savings from doing attic insulation, from doing any hmm. of these kinds of things, from replacing windows. That might be where the 30% savings on windows came in, was right. a REM rate model. So maybe we can't blame the window manufacturers. What other software? Uh, we've, we've been through a program called Optimizer, which is kind of uh, taking over and it's based on utility bills. It gets predicts a little bit closer, at least for overall, but then it still gives drastically over uh, over predicted savings to insulate a basement and things that we know just don't provide any savings. Mm -hmm. We know empirically from and, doing the work and then measuring after it's done that it doesn't, that somehow their equation is wrong. Right. Uh, What's the one that uh, is supposed to tell you your cost effectiveness? Be opt. Be opt. Yeah, yes, that's a very popular one. Again, based on based on poor, it's poor input, poor output. Right. It's garbage in, garbage out. I, I know. So um, there's. It doesn't look like there's any thermal bridging right. options. I don't know anything about the software, but from what I've seen, people using and design software for it, it's like my yeah. God. You know, that's pretty significant issues just from the envelope is concerned that could be easily designed out with no cost that are in there and be opted and catch it. Right. So, and, and that's, you know, it's still blaming the software is, right. is kind of where I go sometimes, but I, I don't necessarily blame the software. I think with a, pro, a program like be opt, the inputs from the user are huge too. Mm -hmm. And that is a very difficult thing to go in and really accurately input a true representation of that building. And if you've put in insulation at a highly inflated cost and, and air sealing at a highly inflated cost, then it's trying to optimize. It's trying to tell you in the next five years what, what's going to be your best payoff. And we looked at this, uh, you looked at the HERS rating of a passive house PHPP designed project in Fort Collins. Right. And you noticed that the HRV, or it was an ERV, was right. was just the nameplate was in, put yes. in it, and it's probably running at a third of that. Yes, I, at I, most. I can't remember now whether it was saying that it was running at 120 watts or, or right 24 hours a day. Just right. a huge amount of energy. And I, and I know that company. I know their motors, and it's probably more like 45 watts. Right, right, and, and yeah. So so I do think uh, when we look at rim rate models, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to blame it all on REM rate, uh, but I am going to say that 90% of the time, um, what, for whatever reason, the model is incorrect. And I'd say the same with passive houses is that, uh, especially for overheating, is that uh, people were first in warmer climates were just completely dependent on the PHPP to, to really predict how the building would perform for you know, all season long or for all year long, and they started getting overheating issues. Right. And part of the problem was that they just weren't, they, they were overly reliant on the model when you have a bunch of glass. I found out from my own house is that, oh yeah, you know what? You're not going to overheat in the summer. 
When am I going overheat? Shoulder seasons. Oh my God, fall is a nightmare when you have that sun getting lowered. All of a sudden, within a few weeks, that sun is at at 10 degrees lower, 15 degrees lower, and you have a lot more light coming into that building, Right. even on a long day. It dramatically changes how that building works just for a few weeks, but that right. few weeks is really a, a I, I very agree. hard to actively put into a, a, a spreadsheet, for, right. essentially. And that's where uh, I, I do think we're going to evolve to a place where we've got uh, better better ways to put in a seasonally put in exterior shading. Yeah. I think that's, it's mandatory. In a, and still in a, use in best practices yes. and learn best that's practices right. before you start energy modeling. Cause it's just going, as you said, as a garbage in garbage out, it's right. just going to tell you, you know, yeah, that's not an optimized thing, but if you don't know what an optimized solution is, right. then the software can't tell you do it better this way. You're going to have to figure that out. So, it seems as though the software could be a crutch rather than, you know, rather than a training tool and learning how to do it better from then on. If you don't see the thermal bridging, you don't know what thermal bridging is. Software right. isn't saying it's thermal bridging. Yeah, software it's can't no see that. It's no good. Yes, and that's where I'm just starting into my passive house training now and just going through the thermal bridge equations. It's so telling. It's just so informative to do a thermal bridge equation and say, this is the cost of that thermal bridge. It's, it's a huge variable that these unsophisticated programs don't get in and don't, don't uh, uh, factor in at all into their models. So I think we, we did a really good job to keeping to our theme, which is, I think, you know, we should give ourselves credit because we usually can never keep on topic. I mean, it's usually, we keep on the general topic, but that's it's good. Yeah. I was uh, sitting here thinking this is not like our typical conversation where we go down on different tangents. It's the and, magic uh, of the microphone. Yes, yes <laughs> it, it does keep you a little bit more on task. So what you don't know, I think we, so what else, is there anything else big that we don't really know that you we know, always assume? I think we've, we've covered it. I think the big thing is don't trust the energy model. Mm-hmm. And uh, know that there's a better way to do it. And in my opinion, that is passive house. So yeah, that's, that's, let's, let's get the home performance on the, uh, the forefront of the conversation and, and make it happen. And it's not impossible at all. Uh, we can make airtight homes. And, and as far as addressing that airtight part of it, mm-hmm. uh, builders have prided themselves on craftsmanship for ages. Well, a, a home that is leaky and is leaking from random places is not anything that I would call a craft. So airtightness is the easiest, the cheapest thing to do. Now, if we build an airtight balloon, we're not going to have home performance. That is not going to be good. We still need to insulate. We need to learn all those concepts too. And have but some sort of fresh air strategy. Of all, yeah, we have to have the fresh air strategy. But first of all, let's build that envelope absolutely airtight. And you can't make and it too airtight. All of, You cannot make it too airtight. Yep. And, so what is the cheapest thing you can do? That answers that question yes. in that sense. I mean, we're still talking about... Uh, in general, right. we're still talking about building systems, right. but from just from the ground level of where to start. Right. So in my, my, uh, my way of addressing that on existing homes is we cannot fix the entire existing home. We're stuck with some things. 
but every assembly that we touch on that existing home, when we touch it, we need to make it absolutely airtight. Mm -hmm. If we don't, if we, lose, if we leave gaps around, that's when we're going to actually start creating problems by letting that air through and letting that moisture-laden air is what causes problems in buildings. Mm -hmm. We stop the airflow, we stop the problems. Right, right. And we improve the building. Yeah. So air tightness. Air tightness. All right. Thanks, John. I appreciate the time. Thank you, it was Andrew. It good fun.